We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, this week of Christmas, and thinking particularly about the incarnation. We'll read from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read this morning just the portion of Matthew chapter 1 that is the genealogy. Um, the, the genealogies in the scriptures are sections that maybe we often skip or skim or and don't um, give a lot of attention or understanding to. Um, but they're very interesting and important things to learn in this genealogy here, important things about uh, introduction to Jesus. Um, and as we'll see, it's a very unusual and, and in some ways unexpected uh, genealogy, and that's part of what points us to what we have to learn here. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 verses. Here God's holy and foul word. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Akashapat, Akashapat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah. Isaiah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the mother of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abibah. Abibah the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer the father of Mathan. Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. I'll end our reading there. <coughs> came across a while back an, an essay that was using on time and the future. And said in part this, we know the present, what is happening now, we know by memory something of our own past, and by history something of the world's past. But the future, what will happen, has not yet happened, and has not yet happened. We know not. The future is a closed book, or rather a book that has not yet been opened. Tomorrow never comes, and no one has ever seen it. We are blind to the future. Well, it's true that we don't know a lot. There's a lot that we do not know about the future. But are we completely blind to the future? That's what the Bible describes as uh, despair, our hopelessness, having 
no knowledge at all, no certainty about the future and what happens after death, for example. This is not the position that we stand in as, as Christians. Uh, we have God's many promises. Um, and yet, we also can be tempted to doubt that future because of trouble that we face or the weight for God's promises or our own sin. But our text here that we've read, Matthew gives some of Israel's history in, in leading up to Jesus and connecting it to Jesus, some good, some bad, to show, I think, in, in large part, that they have hope for the future. Uh, the Savior that they had hoped for for so long was, was finally here. So the, the main thing I want you to take away this morning is the fact that God fulfills his promises despite our sin, despite our broken world, uh, our disappointments, uh, he, he does that. He gives us that confidence chiefly in, in the birth and the coming of Jesus. Uh, it shows us that. So persevere in your faith. Trust in, in your faithful God. Uh, number one on your outline, I just want to, um, uh, just sort of by way of introduction here, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and um, we'll be right back there in a couple of weeks, but just a couple of things about um, this Gospel that the author is Matthew, of course, or Levi, as he was also known. We don't know that because his name is in the book, but it's the universal testimony of the, uh, the early church and church history. Um, it, it seems fairly clear he was writing to a Jewish audience. Uh, he writes a lot of, of a lot of Old Testament or Jewish customs that he doesn't explain. Um, he gives many Old Testament quotes. Um, even the genealogy here would, would seem particularly meaningful to someone who is very familiar with Israel's history already. Um, just by way of interesting contrast, uh, the Gospel of Mark has 31 quotes of the Old Testament. Uh, the Gospel of John has only 16. Uh, Matthew has 61. Um, and Mark was in the second place uh, of the Gospels. So Matthew has uh, far more than any other uh, Gospel. He opens it here in verse 1 with uh, the record, and in my translation here, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. The record of the genealogy. The word that's translated genealogy there is the Greek word genesis. And we'll rec you'll maybe recognize genesis in, in our, our English transliteration. It's the first <laughs> book in our Bible, it's Genesis. Right? And that word genesis can, can really mean uh, two different things, sort of the meaning can go in two different directions. The one is origin or genealogy, it can have that meaning. Uh, it also can just mean story or, or history or the account of something. So there's always a, an interpretation, an interpretive debate here whether which, which way Matthew is using that term. Is he introducing the genealogy here, just the next 15 verses, or is he introducing the whole story of the whole book? Um, it, it could be either way. Um, I think that Matthew is here introducing the entire book, the, the book of Jesus, the story of Jesus. Uh, so it'd be used in a similar way to uh, the way it's used in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis sometimes. Uh, chapter 2, for example, this is the Genesis, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the story. Uh, Matthew here is introducing the whole story, the history of creation, a uh, uh, new Genesis new creation that God is, is bringing about um, through Jesus' work, through his ministry, uh, new creation. Um, 
So despite what maybe most translations, English translations have, it seems like most commentators, in fact, prefer sort of the other side of, of the, uh, the option here. So several have something like the book of the history of Jesus Christ, the verse one here. Leon Morris is one of my favorite commentators on Matthew. He has the book of the story of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask, um, secondly, just uh, look at, at three things that this um, this genealogy here uh, points us to about Jesus coming uh, as we look at this list of names. Okay? And the, the first is that God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham and to David. And you see that uh, Matthew mentions Abraham and David in verse 1 uh, and verse 17 as well as in, in the genealogy there. That Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, why, why is he listed as the son of these two? Uh, well, one uh, concept, we talked about this a little bit in our men's study yesterday, uh, this theological concept of progressive revelation, the idea that God reveals himself in the scriptures more and more progressively uh, throughout the Bible. We learn more and more about him, more and more about his plan of salvation as we go along. We don't know as much at the beginning as we do in the middle and as we do it at the end. And, um, so this is true even of the gospel. We have what we call the, the first gospel uh, in Genesis 3, the promise of someone to come to, to crush the serpent, to, to reverse this evil that had been done. But that's, that's all that we know. And it's gradually more and more uh, revealed throughout the prophets and through the whole scriptures uh, through Christ. And particularly, God reveals his plan uh, in, in covenants, in these great covenants that he gives to Abraham, for example, or to David. Um, those are particularly significant. And so calling Jesus here the son of Abraham, the son of David, points to his being the fulfillment of those promises that were made to Abraham and to David. And standing in the line and the expectation of what God had given through Abraham and through David. And Matthew goes on in his gospel to call Jesus the son of David a number of times and demonstrates how he fulfills those promises. What did God promise to Abraham and David? He promised to Abraham that he would make uh, him a great nation, his descendants would be a great nation, that ultimately the entire world would be blessed by his family. Um, he promised to David a kingdom that would be established forever, that, that his, his son's throne uh, would, would be established and ruled forever, that he would have rest from his enemies. Of course, David and, and his immediate sons and the generations that followed never experienced those things fully. But these are God's greatest promises that we're anticipating uh, something in the future. We could speak of, um, by way of some kind of contrast, Smaller promises of God are more, no promises of God are small, but more, more temporary, immediate promises of God. God promised Abraham a son, and a son was born. Uh, he promised um, Gideon you know, victory over the army he was facing. And, and we can multiply those, you know, many, many examples of those promises. He promised to the nation of Israel, their land, he promised them they would go to captivity, that they would come back from captivity. Those things happened. Imagine that you had one of those more immediate promises from God, those lesser, if you will, um, promises. A promise of a child or a promise, some specific thing for our congregation or something like that. Just think how you would 
anticipate that. How eagerly you would anticipate that. Well, again, these promises to Abraham and David are, in a sense, the, the great promises, the greatest promises that God made to Israel. Uh, right throughout, anticipating that the Messiah throughout the Bible, the whole earth would be covered with blessing from Israel. There would be a righteous kingdom that covers the earth, a, a, a king of David that would rule forever. These are world-changing promises, promises that last forever. And Matthew is saying the son of David and Abraham is here. This is it. He's finally here. The long-awaited promises of God are, are fulfilled. God's shown to be faithful. Um, faith in God is, is vindicated. Well, we, we still have great history-shaping promises of God to us today. Right? Some of, some of the promises of God we have uh, now, we, we have these things now. Some of them are still future. We, we await them. We, we do not have them. We don't see them yet. Uh, and many of God's promises that we have, we have them in part now, but they're not completely with us yet. We're still waiting for their fulfillment. So some well-known promises. First um, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. That's a promise we have in full now. Right? Uh, Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's one that we have some now, but not fully. Right? We can all look at things in our lives where, where God has worked for our good and for his glory. We can see that in history. And yet we certainly don't have the fullness. We don't see the fullness of that yet. We don't understand it fully yet. Uh, Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's something that, again, in a sense we, we have that resurrection life. And yet we also face death. We, we do not yet have our resurrection bodies. And, and we could go on. Um, Jesus promised to build his church and so on. Um, I, as a kid, often when we went on long trips, in my family, long uh, road trips, and I remember when I was very little, time went very slowly. Um, I thought we'd never get there. Dad must be driving in circles. Uh, how have we seen this farm? You know, it's a 50 times already. Uh, but we always got there. We always got there. And yeah, it wasn't a certainty, of course. Something, um, something could have gone tragically wrong, and, and we didn't get there. Things in our lives sometimes can make us wonder if we're really going to get there. Um, are we really making progress? Is God really working all things for good? Is Christ really coming back to, to renew this broken creation? It's sort of like a long drive for a little kid. It can seem like a long time. So when you're tempted to doubt, um, remember that God is always truly faithful, uh, especially in sending Jesus. Fulfilling these long-waited promises. These people waited thousands of years for the promises that he made to them that were fulfilled in Christ. And now, in terms of Matthew's time, after God had been silent really for 400 years, Matthew's saying he's here. God is faithful to his promises. Is one thing that this genealogy points us to. Secondly, God proves that he works all of history for his purposes. Look at verse 17 again, where... Matthew summarizes what he's just put before us. He says, all the generations of Abraham to David are 14, David to the deportation, 14, and from the deportation to the Messiah, 
14. Now, why all these 14s? Um, this is a, a literary device that, that Matthew is using, arranging this uh, genealogy in 14s. He's, he's doing that to make a point. He's not just listing all of these names to connect a bloodline for Jesus. And that, that's obvious because there aren't just 14 generations. Matthew skips many generations in this list. Um, you can't just add 14 plus 14 plus 14 and get the number of generations in the list that he makes. It's a, it's a selective genealogy, as genealogies often were and, and um, maybe aren't in, in, our, in our day or the, way, the scientific way that we expect things to be done. But the people on this list are chosen and organized for a reason, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But uh, it serves to map through this list here as, as a summary, as a, a, an intentional summary of the history of the people of God. Again, why the number 14? Well, probably, as, as it's uh, widely known and accepted and, and evident in the Bible, the number 7 uh, is symbolic of completion or even perfection. Uh, 14 is probably just a an emphatic statement of that, uh, double seven. Um, so look at look at the, the groupings here really briefly. From Abraham on, we have the really leading up to the kingdom of David, uh, establishing the kingdom, God's gathering his people. Uh, we have the Exodus and setting them up as a kingdom. Everything is building, and then we have from David on the second grouping of fourteen. David and Solomon are in some ways the, the pinnacle of Israel's existence. Um, but then that section ends with the deportation of Babylon. The end of verse 11. And severe decline begins. And uh, the last section, the deportation on, there's, there's some restoration when some of Israel comes back after exile. Uh, but there's never again a kingdom. There's never again a king. And so Matthew's uh, writing here. And so we have some, maybe we think of it as, as a rising to David and Solomon and that, that peak of the kingdom of Israel. And then there's certainly decline immediately after David for much of the time, evil kings, and then sort of a drop-off in Israel's history as uh, Israel and Judah are, are uh, exiled. Uh, and even though there's some restoration, there's and the temple's rebuilt, there's, there's no kingdom again until Jesus comes. And Jesus is the real pinnacle uh, of the history of God's people, uh, the real high point. So Matthew, I think, is showing with this, this structure, though, that, that in, in, by giving it a structure, showing that God is in control of history. This is his organization of history. These are his promises, and he is fulfilling them in Christ. Again, 14 is, is likely a symbol for, for perfect, complete, intentional segments of history. God has been guiding history uh, up until the coming of Jesus. And uh, I think Matthew's intended application and application for us is simply to, to trust this God. History is, as people have cleverly said, his story. Right? It is his story. It's, um, it demonstrates that we can trust him. Not only in your personal life, um, but in, in all of history, in, in the history of the world, in the history of the church, uh, Jesus is the center of history. Uh, he's coming again. It speaks to the importance of our studying and knowing history, especially the history of the church. That's what we're doing um, in, our, in our adult class uh, now as well. Well, thirdly, then, uh, this genealogy shows 
maybe most strikingly, God shows his power over sin and his faithfulness to his people uh, despite their sin. Uh, people sometimes take pride in their ancestry, right? Maybe somewhat selectively. Um, that's growing up. Um, it, it was understood in our family that on my mom's side, we were related to Robert E. Lee. Um, and that's generally a positive um, association, something you can tell people, and they respond with fascination and um, mm. a good way to get attention. And, um, on, on my dad's side, uh, we were always told for many years that we were related to Wyatt Earp, uh, the famous <laughs> sheriff of, the, of uh, Dodge and the OK Corral gunfight and all that. Well, a number of years back, we actually looked into that, and um, it turns out the connection is we're, we're related to the McClowry brothers, who were shot by Wyatt Earp and his brothers Doc <laughs> Holliday at the OK Corral. So, um, not quite the same kind of association that, that you might want to claim in your ancestry. Although, as we know, uh, the Earths were not necessarily on the straight and narrow. Uh, there was a lot of crookedness on both sides of that gunfight. But anyways, um, just, just, just so you know. Uh, but Matthew is Matthew selectively pulling people out of Israel's history to connect them to Jesus. Right? This is a selective genealogy, you can put whoever he wants in, especially since he's skipping generations. Um, just imagine, if you were alive at that time, if you were a Jew in Palestine at that time and had a similar lineage to Jesus, who would you uh, selectively put in a genealogy like this? Uh, who might you be proud to claim as an ancestor? Who would you? I mean, Matthew is writing his gospel to exalt Jesus, that people would come to him as Lord and Savior. So you might expect Abraham and the patriarchs and some of the good, successful kings, but we find some real surprises in this genealogy. Again, it's selective, so we might learn something about who or why who is included. We find three three main categories of surprise. So one is that the, the list is not limited to the good guys or sort of the heroes of Israel's history uh, or good events. There are many wicked kings. Um, in this list. Uh, Rehoboam, Joram, Amaz, and others. Um, verse 2, even uh, the reference to Judah and his brothers, you know, including Judah and his brothers, brings up thoughts of the, the horrible sins of Judah and his brothers against, uh, against Joseph. Uh, verse 11, we have another and his brothers. Jeconiah and his brothers, not exactly a happy memory to put into the, the genealogy. Jack and I and his brothers were the wicked puppet kings under Babylon uh, after much of the population had been exiled. Um, they were just puppet kings of, of Babylon there. Um, so then there are other, other things that we could point out as well um, that are not happy memories. Secondly, a second surprise is that this genealogy is not limited to men. Um, that was, that's very unusual. That the genealogy uh, in that time almost never included women. And for, um, for an Israelite, if it included women, it would be, uh, it would, you, have, you have four to choose from. And we have a few examples from ancient Israel of genealogies that include women. It was uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and or Leah. Um, 
compare that to Luke's genealogy, that he has 76 people in his genealogy of Jesus, all, all of them men. So, Matthew includes four women in his briefer genealogy here, um, and none of them are Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, or Leah. Uh, one of them, the, the first one, verse 3, is Tamar. Uh, Tamar is only a woman. Tamar, what we know about Tamar, remember, is she seduced her father-in-law into incest. That's mainly why she's in the Bible. Um, verse 5 mentions Rahab. Of course, Rahab is in Hebrews 11 as well as an example of, of faith, but Rahab also is a, a prostitute. Uh, verse 5, Ruth. And then verse 6, Bathsheba. Uh, in fact, in, in the Greek, uh, Matthew doesn't actually give Bathsheba's name. It just says her of Uriah, probably avoiding her name because of the associations um, that she brings up in, in terms of her sin with David. Uh, so, there are four women in this abbreviated list, which is a, a surprise in terms of what would be expected in that day. And then, um, and, and several of them, not with, with the best um, associations. Again, we don't have Sarah and Rachel and, and so on here. And then, thirdly, the third category of surprises here, that this list is not limited to Jews. Uh, the list is not limited to Jews. And there are many, uh, we sometimes forget, maybe in American theology, there are many, many, many non-Jews uh, in terms of ethnically descended from Abraham uh, in the Old Testament. Um, but, again, the women factor in here. Tamar was a Gentile. Uh, Rahab was a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile. And Bathsheba was at least married to a Gentile, Uriah the Hittite. Right? So it's assumed generally that she was also a uh, Gentile. Uh, all four of these women. Well, what, why these unexpected things? These uh, very unhappy memories and uh, people that you would not want to be associated with necessarily. Uh, it, it highlights first the failure of individuals, the failure also of the nation of Israel. Uh, over and over again, leading up to Christ, the need for salvation, the insufficiency of what Israel had in its history up until that time. Uh, even, even the good guys, we might call in this list, had well-known failures. Think of David and Solomon. Everyone in this list is clearly in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ uh, comes, Jesus comes as the Christ, uh, not because of his genealogy, but in spite of his genealogy. It's clearly part of the point. If this is not a resume to puff Jesus up, uh, it's not a record of his impeccable pedigree. Uh, these are people that, that Christ came to, to rescue and to fulfill. He came in spite of their unfaithfulness because of God's faithfulness uh, to them. Uh, he came to save sinners. So this genealogy points us to already. Uh, secondly, the inclusion of Gentiles and women uh, anticipates what Israel should have been clearer on already, but Paul states clearly, for example, in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that these distinctions have no meaning in any kind of sphere anymore, but all are one, all are equal before Christ, before God in salvation. Neither things that we learned in this genealogy, that, that essay that I quoted from in the beginning, uh, ends, 
this way. On the whole, this person writes, our blindness to the future is a blessing. If a man knew from the beginning the whole course of his life and the date and manner of his death, most of the joy and adventure of his life would be gone. Life would be an uninteresting straight road, the end of which could be seen from the beginning. Much better not to know, this person writes, but to travel on, hopefully, day by day. And I hope you recognize the error, um, the grasping for some kind of hope that's not there uh, in what's written there. Life with some knowledge of the future would not be boring. Um, knowledge of the promises of God and Christ is, is really the only thing that gives life meaning, gives it hope and purpose and direction. Um, we can know that we're involved in something eternal. We can know that we're loved and known uh, by God. Um, we contrast that with, with unbelievers, those who do not know and believe in Christ and the reason for his coming. It's, it's as if they're living up against a wall, as this, as this essay describes. You know, not knowing, not believing, especially the, the history-shaping, purpose-giving events like God's creation, um, his promises to Abraham and David, especially in becoming a man, coming in the person of Jesus. Uh, it's like living up against a wall. You can't see even an inch or a second in front of your face with any knowledge or any certainty at all of anything in the future. It really should be the height of despair. But if you know God and you believe his word, like those that Matthew writes to, you know, despite all of your sin, all of your struggles, all of your disappointments, um, God has always been faithful to his promises, and he always will be. And in sending Jesus, um, he proves that chiefly, and, and he is coming again. So trust in him, put your faith in him. Uh, he is faithful. This is uh, a large part of the lesson of this introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for uh, your word again this week and this uh, part of your word that perhaps uh, maybe we don't uh, often give as much attention to or understand, but we uh, thank you for the way that Matthew demonstrated here uh, the, the need for a Savior uh, in the history of your people, uh, a need that is still present in, in us, in our history, and the history of the church. Uh, since Christ still demonstrates our weakness, our dependence on your grace. Um, thank you for the way that it, it demonstrates the inclusion in your kingdom uh, of all kinds of people uh, from all over the world. Uh, we thank you for that, uh, that, that that includes us today. Uh, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus for the incredible miracle and endless uh, lessons in uh, you, our God, becoming a man and living, uh, living this life with us and ultimately for us and dying for us. Lord, give us faith in that this week as we reflect on the coming of Christ and, uh, every week. Praise in his name. Amen. Mm-hmm.